Nuclear. This field of science was responsible for the devastating conclusion to the Second World War. This alone would be enough to suggest why few other technologies conjure as much misunderstanding and fear. Today, the very same field now quietly supports our way of life by providing unique ways to interact with reality. It allows us to observe the world in impossibly fine resolution, it enables us to measure and gauge events of the distant past, offers options for diagnosis and treatment of severe ailments, and generates great power with exceptionally low carbon emissions. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. Anyone any way connected to nuclear power advocacy in Australia will no doubt be familiar with my first guest. Those same people would agree that I could have asked for no one better for the pilot episode. Staunch advocate for nuclear power in Australia, founder and director of the NGO Bright New World, Dr. Ben Hurd. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Logan, and congratulations on Going Fission. It's a terrific initiative. Thank you very much. Look, so, first question I've got. You're quite a well-respected figure in the, in the science of climate change. Um, where did this start for you? That started fairly modestly. Uh, I think it's fair to say I had taken a master's in sustainability, corporate and environmental sustainability at Monash University in Victoria. And from a couple of career changes, I, I moved towards a climate change uh, advisory team. And so we were doing a lot of work in um, climate change adaptation at that time. As I moved ahead and sort of further down uh, my story, I got very well acquainted with uh, Professor Barry Brook here in Adelaide, who was doing a lot of really terrific writing about climate change science, and he was doing a lot of uh, outreach about climate change science as well. And I was certainly getting very, very frustrated with the uh, continual denialism in climate change science that I was seeing so much of sort of around this 2006 to 2010 period. It was something that I felt very, very strongly about. And I didn't have the ability to do the original climate change science work. You know, that was well outside of uh, my remit. But I did have the ability to communicate uh, what I had learnt and what I had understood to a broad range of audiences, which sort of then, you know, also included doing some lecturing uh, and handling some units of sustainability then for Adelaide University. And so I feel like I've had a very fortunate opportunity to, to be a conduit for the work of some really brilliant people, uh, including you know some really brilliant Australian scientists who've gone on to become my friends and supervisors. And, you know, I think in terms of the nuclear power uh, advocacy in Australia, it's uh, it has been really material that I started from that position of climate change and defending and fighting for the climate change science. You know, and if any if anyone has, wants to uh, go back and do the archaeology at the conversation and, and find all of my comments, you know, from 2006 uh, onward, that was, you know, you'll see that that was something that I was taking very personally and very seriously, and and that I felt I had uh, had a fortunate position, you know, being someone who was trying to implement and operationalize what we were learning about climate change uh, for clients, people like the city of Melbourne or, or people like electricity distributors. Um, meant that I had an original take on what was going on. And you know, that has been a really crucial part of my journey and something that, that remains part of my professional life today. Excellent. Um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think earlier on you were a little bit anti-nuclear or you were against the nuclear option. Was that accurate? Yeah, I was staunchly anti-nuclear. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a, a terribly informed position. It was more of a formed position that sort of sprang out of my overall life journey. Uh, I was, you know, and a lot of people have, have misunderstood this about me. I've been mis, sometimes misattributed as a, a former anti-nuclear campaigner. That's not true. I wasn't, I wasn't leading campaigns against nuclear. But what I was was someone who had come out of uh, the Catholic Church and a, a Catholic upbringing where we were very concerned with social justice and peace. So, and certainly in the 1980s and the mid-1980s, peace was a very big issue. Um, we had communism ending. 1986 was the International Year of Peace. 1986 was also the year the Chernobyl reactor blew yeah. up. Uh, and so, a very legitimate peace movement um, that was very much tied to wanting nuclear um, war to become implausible for our future was a part of my upbringing. Um, and... Yeah, we read National Geographic, and so that that was very much a part of, a part of my upbringing as well. And so there was a very strong messaging that was coming to me. And as a young man growing up in Australia, that's the only messaging I was getting about nuclear technology whatsoever. So it was fairly logical that my default position about nuclear was going to be an unfriendly one. Now from there, uh, you know, as soon as I started earning any money for myself, I was an enthusiastic environmentalist. So, you know, no sooner did I have, have, have a job at Woolworths than, you know, I was giving some of my money to Greenpeace and giving some of my money to the Wilderness Society. And, and I remained the, you know, their supporters for quite a long time. And so you can imagine then I'm embracing um, the message that they're bringing to me, some of which I still <laughs> very strongly believe in. But And part of which, which I've, I've gone back and seen on, on the letters that I've received, which I still have filed away, was an anti-nuclear indoctrination that made sure that I thought nuclear power was the worst option you know, of everything that we had in front of us. It was the worst option. And so that was true for me all the way through my Masters of Sustainability, all the way through uh, my first few years of uh, consulting in environmental sustainability and other projects, nuclear power was simply anathema. And if anyone had asked my opinion, and some people did, um, I was very, very clear about that. Yes, I'm absolutely concerned about climate change. Nuclear power, no way. So, yeah, that's absolutely, you know, what life was like for me and where I came from. It's a, it's a, a genuine part of the origins of, of, of how, I, how I have come to be doing what I'm doing today. Right. Can you point to a specific light bulb moment where it switched over, or was it more a gradual coming to a uh, coming to that conclusion or changing your opinion? Both. Um, there was there was some of both. So a couple of light bulb moments that I'll that I recall in studying sustainability. There was a there was a French guy in one of my tutorial groups. He was actually from the island of uh, Réunion, a little uh, island off in the Indian Ocean somewhere. And uh, he pretty frankly one day said, I don't know what the hell you Australians are all doing. We should just be having, I think we were talking about transportation at the time. We should just be running nuclear power plants and having electric cars and be done with it. And there was just something so pragmatic and simple <laughs> about, what he's, yeah, yeah, about what he said and the way he said it that I still pushed it away, but it sort of got around my hand, if you like, went in my ear and lodged <laughs> in my brain um, for later. 
Yeah, uh, so sure. I didn't do I didn't do with it at the time, but for later. And then, yeah, you know, a lot of people have asked me about this transition. I was actually, I was actually hoping you'd ask so I could pinpoint some of these more specific things. You know, one of the jobs that I had to do at one point was to do with the Victorian desalination plant at at Wonthaggy. And we had to, you know, the commitment of government at the time was that this would be a quote-unquote carbon neutral uh, piece of infrastructure. And so one of my jobs in that team, I was in charge of the spreadsheet of all of the inputs of energy and materials for this plant, what that was going to mean in greenhouse gases and how we're going to make sure that's carbon neutral. And it was just staggering. You know, the amount of energy that was going to be needed for one desalination plant in the continent of Australia. And given what I knew about climate change and what we're probably going to need for desalination this century worldwide. And then I see the emissions per unit electricity from this brown coal in Victoria. I see the amount of brown coal down the road in the Latrobe Valley. And then I see our calculations about what this would mean for... Uh, purchasing green power at the, at the time, which was the strategy, purchasing new, newly developed wind uh, uh, infrastructure projects from the grid and using that to offset the, the desal plant emissions. And I was just thinking, this is, this is madness. We would need to build a massive, massive new amount of wind power just to offset this one new piece of essential infrastructure. If this is where we're going, like that's not even going to sort of shut down the brown coal. And that that was around, well, you'd probably be able to find exactly when that is. I think that's about 2008, uh, 2009. And, you know, that's when I, I was just struggling with the numbers and I was starting to go where, uh, if this is what we've got by way of options for climate change, um, it's, not, it's not just hard, we're screwed, basically. And so... You know, and then, and then I had another friend at the, at the Department of Sustainability and Environment of Victoria. He had been one of my clients for some of our work there. We became, became good friends. He's still a good friend. Hello, Will, if you're, if you're watching. And, and, and he was someone I really respected. I fully respected his, his, his um, views about sustainability and environment. And he one day quite pragmatically said, um, you know, this was soon before I moved back to Adelaide, quite pragmatically said, look, I just think we should probably be using nuclear power. And at that point, I really just kind of stared at my shoes. You know, I'd really kind of run out of strong comebacks to that. And so there were those, um, there were those moments along the way. And then in the downtime between those moments, there was more of that gradual process that you're talking about, where you sort of start to, to open yourself to more in information on that topic and it starts to get in. And that all sort of, you know, that all came to a head about the end of 2010. And that was it. Game over. You walked away from sort of potential careers with some very sort of high-profile engineering companies in Australia, and you started Think Climate. Uh, why'd you do that? Uh, so it was partly pragmatic. Um, you know, it was time in in my personal life to return to to the city that I love, which is Adelaide. Um, you know, having having a young family, and so it was time to to return home. That gave the opportunity to start my own consulting business and. I felt like I needed to do that because at the time, uh, a lot of the consulting money that was available in climate change was to do with adaptation. Now, I believe in adaptation. Adaptation is something we essentially have to get on with doing. It's very, very important work, but it wasn't the work that really motivated me. I really wanted to be doing more work in the mitigation space. I really wanted to be working with companies and organizations about actually lowering their greenhouse gas emissions 
not just um, positioning themselves to deal with the climate change that we had in the pipeline. And I wasn't really feeling like I was getting a lot of opportunities to do that. That just didn't seem to be what was going on. And so I wanted to start Think Climate to pitch that, to say there's actually huge opportunities for you as private organisations, government organisations, NGOs, to strengthen your organisation by going through a process of understanding uh, where and how you have impacts on the environment and changing your practices. And so Think Climate gave me the opportunity to present that suite of services to the market, mostly, almost exclusively here in South Australia. And look, that just made me happy on a personal level. You know, I felt like I was getting closer to what it was I actually wanted and needed to be doing, why I had sort of got into the sustainability game in the first place. Um, it took some time to warm up, but it eventually did. I think Climate ended up doing some really good, actually quite leading work with local government. Uh, so we had some really exceptional uh, relationships with the city of Onkaparinga with their pursuit of carbon neutrality. We were certainly very trusted in in as advisors in that role. Uh, also with the city of Adelaide in terms of their energy efficiency program um, and helping them model and understand where they could save energy. So a lot of the street lighting replacement program that the city of Adelaide has um, embarked upon, you know, we had a hand in, in building that case for them. So I'm really, really proud of a lot of the work that, that we were able to do. Fringe benefit was it also gave me um, the personal autonomy that I felt I needed to talk about nuclear power because I think it is a less controversial space in 2018 than it was in 2009. Uh, in 2009 and working for very large firms as a relatively junior person, I don't think there was really a lot of appetite for me to go out and have a strong opinion on that topic. Uh, and I wanted to go out and have a strong opinion on that topic because, again, I, that's why I got involved in the whole environmental and sustainability space in the first place is because I felt like something needed to be said and people needed to speak up. So I think climate was a really effective vehicle for me to do both, to work more in climate change mitigation and also to have, to have that autonomy to, to speak about what I thought was the bigger unaddressed issue in Australian energy. In Australia, what roles do you think it can play? What can it do for us? It's worth you know, scratching the surface to understand just what puts together Australian energy at the moment. And when, I, when people in other countries ask me, so what is Australian energy made of? And I tell them it's about 68% coal and about 15% gas, they're dumbfounded. That's really, really high. Like on a global scale, that's really high because we are one of two nations in the OECD, I think it is, along with Italy, that don't use nuclear power and we have very little hydroelectricity. So Australians don't realise just how fossil dependent we are. And so sitting underneath the Australian economy, chugging away, there's about 20 gigawatts of coal. Uh, that's a huge amount of coal. So we need to use nuclear power in a blended fashion with a whole lot of other technologies in order to provide ourselves with a system that's really, really deeply, deeply decarbonised and affordable and reliable. And this is, the, you know, I mean, this is the conversation that's being had in Australian politics for the last 12 or 18 months, right? Clean, affordable, reliable. Okay. Well, there's a technology which is demonstrated around the world to do all three. And it's the one and only technology that Australia is preventing itself from even considering. So is there a role for nuclear power in Australia? Absolutely. I mean, for so long as we're running 20 gigawatts of coal, of course there's a role. 
is that role necessarily 20 gigawatts of nuclear? No, not necessarily. So there could be a great deal of rationalising in the way Australia runs its uh, electricity infrastructure and markets that is, I think, is going to mean that we use a lot more variable uh, wind and solar power. That means we are going to do a lot more with demand management. I think that's a huge area that is going to alter the way we need to operate a market. I think we are going to add uh, new relatively large-scale energy storage. I'm particularly interested in compressed air storage at the moment as an option. All of those things are going to play a part, and nuclear can be blended really nicely with all of those to get what we need. And I'm talking about greenhouse gas emissions of like 50 grams per kilowatt hour and under on average. If you've got a pretty, if you only have a modest ambition, if you don't care, if you think 250 or 300 grams is okay, fine. Just push ahead with wind and solar and end up with the inevitable underlying body of coal and gas. And that's what we'll get. We'll get a much messier electricity market that's sort of clean, but not really. Okay, that's not really good enough. If your ambition is high, if your ambition is fundamentally full decarbonisation, even to the point where we can then use electricity to decarbonise other sectors, the role for nuclear is, is, param is paramount, it's unequivocal. People, uh, when, when this conversation starts, people then often push back, well, we will just use this cheap renewable electricity and storage. And there's a couple of things about that that are very important. And I was hearing a colleague of mine on the radio the other day, and someone I, I like a lot, respect a lot. He's a very smart guy, but he was emphasizing this cheap renewable energy. And what people, a lot of people are still missing is that a cheap kilowatt hour is a very, very different thing to an affordable system. And so these cheap kilowatt hours of wind and solar power bring a huge amount of challenges in actually getting them into the system to make an affordable system, point one. Point two, energy storage, and this is the, the part that I'm glad a few people are starting to cotton on to. If we can have more energy storage on the Australian grid, it can store energy from any source. It's not trademarked to wind and solar. So if you have wind and solar in excess that's causing negative pricing, yep, you tap that off and you store it. But the thing is, if you're running a nuclear power plant at a fairly high rate day long, and then you have an overnight period where demand is lower, guess what? You can send that excess capacity to storage as well. And it can then be used the following day to lower peak. And what we are going to need to do is bring all of these technologies together into some modelling and find out what's the actual optimal combination of all of them. And that will help us get something that's really, really cost-effective. Nuclear and storage works together really, really, really beautifully. And in the, in the longer run, we need the heat. Uh, yeah, this is something that... As again, in process heat? Yeah. Yeah. This is just absurdly under-researched and under-attended to in climate change mitigation work. And Australia is no different to anyone. We're doing no better or worse than anyone in the world. But about a third of our energy is heat, is process heat. And I'm talking about things from about 250 degrees up to 1,000 degrees or more. That is not going to be replaced quickly and easily by wind and solar, so-called cheap wind and solar, isn't going to do that. We need low-carbon heat, and we need that to be able to be distributed and decentralised close to these industrial hubs where they're using it. That is an almost unfettered essential role for advanced nuclear technologies that can produce that high, those high outlet temperatures uh, that can do service that industrial heat market, which in turn helps us make synthetic fuels, and so on, and so on, and so on. When people... 
argue that, you know, we don't need nuclear in Australia. They are fundamentally and totally misunderstanding the challenge of decarbonisation. It's just so much bigger than those commentators either realise or are prepared to admit. And we need more people understanding and speaking in loud voices about just, you know, just what the energy needs of, of this nation are so that we can get that option on the table. And, you know, if it's the wrong option, it won't get built. That's, you know, people say, well, it'll be too expensive. It's like, well, the market will tell us that if that's the case, but we have to get it on the table. Tell us a bit about Decarbonise SA and how that transitioned into Bright New World. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. I mean, so what, so what happened, the course of events was I was in Adelaide uh, running Think Climate Consulting and at about the end of 2010, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm over the line here and I've got something I need to talk about, which is the fact that Australia needs to use nuclear power. So I went out with a slide deck and gave a presentation and I've, uh, I've quipped that that first presentation had a room with uh, four people in it. Um, one of them was my wife. The other one was my dad. So it was a pretty humble beginning, right? Nice. But yeah, <laughs> nice. But fortunately, one of the other two people was from the local technology industry association. And she said, that was really good. Would you do that, Would you do that again for us? And I said, sure. You know, thinking in the back of my head, couldn't go any worse than that first one. So, you know, the only <laughs> way... <laughs> The only way is up. Um, and on that occasion, um, I actually double teamed with uh, Barry Brook. And, nice. Um, yeah. Well, you know, he was someone who I'd been reading for many, many years. Uh, his you know, exceptional blog uh, and someone that I had wanted to connect with when I moved back to Adelaide. And we did. Uh, and that, that night, we got sort of got 50 or 60 people. And the response was really, really huge. And so then I had that, that experience of going, gosh, something's just happened. What do I do with it? And um, I didn't know, uh, but the decision that I sort of came to with the, with the help of my wife at the time was, you know, start writing, start a blog, um, get these thoughts down so that people can follow this, give people somewhere that they can stay connected to you um, because people really liked that. So I did. And again, Barry being such a successful blogger, he helped me kind of kick that off. Um, and so I started, I just just started a blog called it Decarbonise SA, Decarbonise South Australia. I was being pretty parochial at the time. Um, and, you know, I was, I was arrogant enough to basically say, I think my state can be decarbonised and here's how I would do it. And I sort of went and looked at the power plants and said, these are the power plants. This is the amount of power we need. Okay. That's not that hard. If we were to use this approximate mix of technology, we'd get it done, wouldn't we? Um, that was the sort of premise of it. And so Barry, uh, you know, gave it a real kick along with um, with his blog. And then one of my first big breakthroughs was a podcast with Rod Adams with Atomic Insight. He became an, uh, an early fan of the blog. He said, "Gee, this new, this new writer is doing something really interesting." So I was a, I was a guest on Atomic Insights, where I've I've now podcasted a few times. And again, it was one of those, uh, it, it was sort of a follow-on from that first presentation where I was getting a good response and I was going, oh, okay, there is something that needs to be done here. And so it went on. And so Decarbonise SA, it sort of became like a journal in a way, uh, an iterative journal of my learning because I still didn't know all that much, let's be honest. You know, in 2010, when I, I knew what I thought and I'd, I'd got the basics of my knowledge, but I still had a long, 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 long way to go. 
And so I used the blog to sort of share what I was learning as I went to conferences and as I, as I went to fora, as I did some more research, as I ran some more numbers. Um, and look, it became pretty, pretty well read. And I was really proud of it. It ran for a lot of years. It, it got a lot of hits. It got quite a good uh, good following. Some of the blog posts in particular, some of them authored by me, but one actually authored by Bright New World's new general manager, you know, became really quite influential. And I'm really, really proud of that. And then you sort of have that experience where you think maybe you're butting up against a ceiling. And sometimes it's, sometimes part of the trick is knowing when to end something. And... I was starting to get the sense that it, it might be time to bring Decarbonize SA to an end because something else needed to start. Um, it it was good. It was loyal. It had a loyal following, but it it still wasn't an organisation. You know, it was a it was a blog. It was it was somewhere where people could come and engage with me and enjoy my writing. But that's not the same thing as an as an as an organisation that's actually here to do a job. And so particularly sort of as the South Australian Royal Commission came to a close in really disappointing fashion with uh, a citizen's jury in South Australia being quite ruthlessly gamed by really unethical conduct from other NGOs here in South Australia. And I have absolutely no hesitation in making those claims. It was dealt fatal blows by really, really disgusting conduct and I realized that there was no voice in the space that could compete, basically. If you were having anything, any process to have this conversation, there was no civil society voice. There was no environmental organization saying, we represent these values as well, but we, dis but we um, disagree on this key point. And so that's when I and some others um, were thinking, okay, well, we need an organization. And so I, had, I wrapped up. Um, Decarbonize SA and I put together uh, a business plan with uh, my friend Dane Eckerman and with the help of uh, Alex Eckerman, his brother and with some advice from Oscar Archer, another um, uh, advisor to us and I went out and, and hassled some people I knew in Adelaide for some funding and I said, okay, here's some money I'm going to put into the pot and it was a lot of money um, for me at that point in time but I said to these people, if I, if I put this much of my own money in this, would you, would you match this? And if I raise this much, will you all commit to putting it in and I will start this? Uh, and we got there uh, and we did, and so we did start it. And I was pleased that almost, almost immediately, very quickly, we sort of got the requisite number of members to be a properly incorporated NGO. Um, I got some pro bono uh, legal work in Adelaide to give us a proper legal constitution. Uh, I established a board because, again, this wasn't meant to be about me. This was about, meant to be about an organisation that will outlive me um, and will do this job for the sort of people in Australia who want and need that type of organisation. And, you know, it's, it's hard because when you finish something that's going, going well, you know, Decarbonise SA was going perfectly well and then you try to start something new, you go through a bit of a dip. You know, you, you, you go off ending something that was going fine, starting something new and you're not sure whether it's kind of going to go fine or well or not. So everything turned into a real milestone, you know, and we're coming up close to two years now. I'm really, really proud of that. It's, it's a very small organisation. Our resourcing is really slim. So we have to be really selective about what we do. But I think we've been very clever in the things we've chosen to do, that making submissions to important processes, showing up, being in the game, representing the values of our members in, in this space. And, you know, we worked hard on our branding. 
We worked hard on the characteristics of our voice. We worked hard on creating a message and a vision that we thought was really different, that we thought was appropriate for this century rather than something that was born in the 1960s, which is where most of our contemporary environmental organizations were born. We, we needed something that was born in, in the early 21st century and was reflecting those challenges. And I think we've succeeded in achieving those things. We've still got a long way to go in terms of becoming a stronger force uh, in Australia. And you know, I'm confident, particularly now with, with some leadership changeover, with Dane Eckerman as our new general manager, um, that we're going to encounter a new, you know, exciting period for Bright New World where, where we really do that, where we really fill that role for Australians who need that different type of voice in the environmental space. All right. So does Bright New World have sort of a specific goal or is it more broadly focused? Yeah, well, good question and thanks for asking. Yes, we set early specific goals relating to a pure advocacy. I mean, you know, we... We aren't like a, an, an NGO that can say we're going to run a campaign for the glossy black cockatoo and we are going to revegetate these areas with these species to get this outcome, right? We, we, we can't build nuclear power, right? But that, that's, that's, you know, we, we're never going to be someone who actually delivers the nuclear power plant, right? But we have to advocate. So we've set ourselves up with, with, to be a clear, loud, strong voice to advocate for the use of these technologies, but most importantly, to do that in a way that we demonstrate the values alignment. So we demonstrate really clearly why we are advocating for these technologies. And that comes back to the broader vision that Bright New World is trying to articulate. What's the point? Why are we actually wanting to use these technologies? Well, it's not because we just love splitting atoms. I mean, some people do. It is um, very cool. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> I expect it is. Never, wouldn't know. Never done it. Um, it's because we want a brighter world. And we've tried to define what we think that brighter world is. And we think it's a world where poverty is continuing to plunge, where um, conservation is actually rebounding, you know, where we, where we are rewilding the world, where we're not just holding back the forces of hell, we're actually making a better, more awesome planet for everybody. And so much, because so much of that comes back to energy, we feel like we can, can paint a compelling vision. We also set out with a couple of more policy goals. We're really interested in the bias in international lending. You know, I find it very distressing that um, multinational banks won't lend for nuclear power projects. It's one of these institutional biases that lead to nuclear underperforming at a global level. And so when people say, oh, nuclear is no good, it's not growing fast enough, it's, it's really important to look under that and say, what are the institutional barriers to this technology and they need to be broken down? And I'm pleased now that with... Our new general manager, Dane Eckerman, yeah, he is helping to articulate a slightly better, broader vision of eco-modernism and helping us find um, a couple more pillars of what the Bright New World vision is. And if you were to watch one of my recent presentations um, where I talk about my great-grandmother and I, I begin with her story and I finish, again, aligning what this better, brighter world is meant to be, uh, Dane is helping us bring more of that as, as policy pillars as well, including... Uh, recycling, better, deeper, more comprehensive recycling and waste management, which is just an absolutely vital topic. Um, 
rewilding. You know, we I've been expressing these values through our newsletter from day one, looking for these good news stories about how we are restoring species around the world. Uh, and so Bright New World sees great potential to partner with a lot of um, true, pure conservation organisations. Organisations that aren't using conservation as a smokescreen for anti-nuclear advocacy, like the Conservation Council of uh, South Australia, that just is incredibly irresponsible. You know, they had a clear remit in conservation and they abuse it by weighing, wading into a space which actually has nothing to do with their mission. Well, fortunately, there are other conservation organisations that aren't like that uh, because that's what Bright New World is about. It's about bringing down greenhouse gas emissions but also bringing up human welfare, bringing up the restoration of nature, bringing down the impacts of our materials consumption. It's about bringing that together into a vision and it's a vision and a space that you know has been termed eco-modernism um i'm a big fan of the eco-modernist manifesto a document that i think is imperfect but very powerful and i know i know a lot of the authors and i'm really proud to identify as as an eco-modernist and so we are trying to bring uh that eco-modern vision to australia and help australians see what sort of a country we could have and help people in the world see what sort of a world we could have if we were to do these things. As I say, we're young, you know, and this is a growth process for us, but I'm very excited about the next 12 months. And I would say, I mean, you know, I'll make the plug early in the podcast if I may. Go for it. It's, it's hard to get people to sign on. You know, the, the people that support Bright New World are unbelievably loyal they are the most amazing group of people but we do get a lot of great feedback and surprisingly little little bump you know so i would say to anyone anyone who's listening that i think that sounds exciting i think that sounds interesting i would say you know we offer a supporter plan that starts at five five bucks a month and the five bucks helps but what helps even more is knowing that you're part of us you know knowing that you're part of that effort it really helps us articulate what we're doing and explain to other stakeholders that we're a meaningful part of the conversation now so if you think it's interesting and worth supporting actually please go that next step and support it uh, because that is essential it's not we're not flooded with support we're not flooded with members all day long it's a slow uh, process to growth and and we need people to come together so we can we can have a credible uh, voice in the space What's 140A? <laughs> One of the cleverest pieces of anti-nuclear legislation in the world. <laughs> okay. Um, again, many Australians, let alone people uh, in other countries, are not aware that it is not merely that Australia does not use nuclear power. Australia has legal instruments in place that prevent us from being able to use nuclear power. And one of the most important of those legal instruments is section 140A of, quite ironically, the Environmental Biodiversity and Conservation Act. And that section states that the minister in charge of that act uh, may not approve certain actions. And listed in those actions is a nuclear power plant. Now, the way the Environmental Biodiversity Conservation Act works is that certain actions will automatically trigger that act. They are listed. If you are to try to do such and such a type of project in Australia, you will need to pass through the Environmental Biodiversity and Conservation Act. Certain other projects will be assessed 
and maybe said, yes, you do need to go through this act, or no, you don't. A nuclear power plant is a non-starter. It doesn't matter how good the argument for the nuclear power plant is in terms of environmental biodiversity and conservation, it doesn't matter. The minister may not approve it. And I have facetiously quipped, you know, that you could propose a koala-burning energy factory. Say, koalas are an awesome source of energy. Yeah, we probably don't want to burn them, but look, on balance, it's actually better for the environment if we do, right? Yeah, it's not going to get up, right? The minister won't approve that, but he's at least allowed to think about it. <laughs> okay. Watch out for those eucalyptus emissions. No, totally, right? <laughs> he's at least allowed to think about it. It's an absurd proposition, but he's not ruled out from, from at least giving it the good grace of saying, look, I've looked at your absurd proposition. It's, it's absurd and I'm not going to approve it. It doesn't matter how good the nuclear proposition is. It cannot be assessed by the minister. Now, that means that a company like uh, New Scale Power, or Moltex, or Starcore, or Terrestrial Energy, or Thorcon, or um, oh, who are the guys that make the little nuclear battery? Oaklo? Oh, yep. One of these extraordinary companies that are bringing extraordinary products to market. Small modular reactors, liquid-fueled reactors, load-following, uh, inherently safe, unbelievably nimble low impact on the environment, low land use, zero greenhouse gas emissions, incredible fuel efficiency, they, they can't even be considered in Australia. And knowing that, they don't even bother to market themselves here because it's pointless. How are they, to convince, they? How are they to convince their board to come to Australia to, to, to try to convince the board of, say, AGL, that they are the correct investment in AGL's energy portfolio? Well, they can't make that case. And that's really distressing. And that's why I say it's one of the cleverest pieces of anti-nuclear legislation worldwide. It, it has Because it's created a vicious circle of silence where uh, we end up with no conversation about nuclear because no one is here to either sell it to us and there's no one in Australia actively making or considering the business case. It's an incredibly effective conspiracy of silence. And so at some point, we need someone to stand up and say, removing this legislation does not mean we are going to build nuclear power plants. There's so much more that would need to happen before that can happen. But at least removing that legislation means someone can come here and make the case. And so anyone that wants to knock on the door of a politician about nuclear power in Australia can say, we need to amend that legislation. It is not serving us. It's not serving us now and in the future as we're going through a massive energy transition to have completely locked out this whole family of technologies. This is not serving us. You were a supporting voice during the South Australian Royal Commission into the nuclear fuel cycle. Now, ultimately, the Commission found that there's not an economic case with the exception of a spent fuel repository, uh, which at this point is not being pursued. What did Australia gain from this Royal Commission? We gained a lot. And one thing we gained that the Nuclear Commission did extremely well is a very good chain of evidence about that conversation. The documentation of what happened, who came, who spoke, what the submissions were, what the arguments were, and how they came to their conclusions is really, really good. And that body of knowledge and information remains there. So we had a very important conversation in Australia that was documented really, really nicely. Some of the challenges include that the, the finding about nuclear power was 
uh, influenced by the fact that the the boundary of that investigation was South Australia was my state, which is a small state. You know, we're we're 1.6 million people, and so in the context of South Australia alone, they didn't find a strong case for the use of nuclear power generation. But they weren't asked about the entire national electricity market, which is this, this, the system we're a part of, which links Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria all together in one grid. That's a different question that could give a very different answer. And again, that, that gets spun. You know, they get spun by opponents to say that the, the Royal Commission found nuclear power is no good for Australia. No, they didn't. They made a finding about South Australia and they made a pretty clear statement that we need good proper investigations of all technologies Australia-wide if we're going to be interested in that. But they, they rightly parked it because that wasn't really the question that they were being asked to answer. As far as the, the used nuclear fuel issue goes, I'm very sad. I'm just genuinely very sad that that stopped in the way that it stopped. I have the privilege of, of going around the world quite a bit for the things that I'm that I'm now being asked to do. And without fail in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, um, expert after expert asks me about that proposal and how it went on. Or if they don't know about it, we'll have a conversation about it. And inevitably, the feedback comes back of that was a really good idea. You know, it's a really, really good idea. And I was with uh, Ed Key when I was last in Fukushima and we went to the reactor together, he runs the nuclear fuel cycle economics, uh, sorry, the nuclear economics consulting group in, in the United States. He's an absolute gun of knowledge for nuclear fuel cycle economics. Yeah, and, and his, his organization produced a report which was leveraged to help end South Australia considering this idea. Well, if you read that report, that's not really what that was saying. They were saying you'd need to manage the risk of it carefully. You'd need to go through, construct a gated process where you invest slowly, a little at a time, to get the answers you need to proceed to the next stage. They identified some assumptions that they didn't think were appropriate from the work that had been done. Now, that's contested by the consultants that worked in the Royal Commission who thought they were being very conservative. But be that as it may, that's part of a robust economic discussion that you can have to move forward in a responsible way. And and Ed was frank with me again when, when we were in Japan going, look, that was a really interesting idea. I'm glad the idea has been out there, it has been had, and we have that, uh, that evidence because it can be used again. But I would like us to frame it differently. I didn't like the very one-way pathway that was proposed, which was basically accept material and bury it. Now, right from the start, myself along with Senator Sean Edwards and others were trying to say, no, let's accept material. Sometime in future, there will need to be disposal of waste. In between those two places, there's a hell of a lot of exciting things that we can do with technology. Uh, and we can use that revenue to help the commercialization process for lots of different technologies, like pyroprocessing, recycling of used nuclear fuel like commercialization of a solid fuel fast reactor to pair with that, like a hub for commercialization for molten salt reactors of various types that can also use the pyroprocessing uh, facility. And I tried to put it to the economics committee, and I think the term I used was that we need to be, what we could be is a full service provider at that end of the fuel cycle. 
that, that delivers so much more value than just putting stuff a very, very long way underground. And, you know, it was a point of disagreement that I had with the people that were operating the, the Royal Commission, and at least we could have the frank discussion where they said, look, we, we, we feel like we need to remain within this pretty tight boundary of what's already established in the nuclear industry, which is that ultimately you do deep, deep geologic disposal. All right. Bit of a long-winded one, and actually, when I wrote this question a few weeks ago, it's things have moved on a bit, so we'll see how we go. <laughs> Despite massive investment in renewables over the last decade, they have minimal contribution to the electric, uh, the electricity generation compared to our coal and our gas, and according to, uh, according to the 2017 Energy Update report, our fleet of coal-fired power stations are in the back half of their lives. Many will close over the next decade. And we're not currently building any replacements, nor planning any. We're favouring gas, which is simply another fossil fuel, cheap capital set up at expensive fuel costs, and typically used for peak loads. The cost of electricity is continually rising, and government action appears lacking. Are we heading for a national energy crisis? Yeah, yes. Um, we're actually already in it, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's it's so bad and it's worse than people realize. The the fact is that we've had an absence of policy, we've had an absence of energy investment policy other than the renewable energy target now for for over a decade. The absence of policy hasn't halted um, Australia from beginning to embark on what's called an energy transition. So where we're investing in a lot of wind and solar, which is happening a lot all over the world. It doesn't stop that from happening. It just means it's happening badly. It's happening in an unstructured way. It's happening in a way where the regulations in the market aren't keeping pace. It's happening in a way where the regulations in the market aren't getting to feedback to that project development and say, we, we're not unsupportive of this happening, but we would like to see it happen in this approximate time frame, in this approximate structure. And it's leading to the most enormous uh, structural and technical problems in Australia's power sector. And every time you know this transition grows in this unstructured way, we are locking in more and more problems that are going to need to be ironed out as they start to flow through the through the power sector here. And all of that has a terrible impact for consumers. Um, we have this situation where people are talking about it. I've said we're talking about you know. Cheap wind, right? Wind is cheap. Wind is now cheaper than coal. Okay. Now, that's actually true. If you're trying to build two new plants, the levelized cost of electricity out of the new plants, a modern, appropriately built coal-fired power station is price X. The wind is price Y, and price Y is lower than price X. Fine. But here's the other thing. It gets to a point where if you are building new wind, say, in South Australia, it might be low cost, but it's zero value. There's so much wind already in South Australia that if you build another wind farm here, unless things change, i.e. a lot more storage or a lot more interconnection, when the wind blows, the price goes negative. And so your new wind farm, the power that it has added has no value. So it's one thing to say, look, it's only you know, a levelized cost of electricity of $75 a megawatt hour. That's well and good, but the thing is when you, for so many more times now when your, your wind turbines are spinning, the price is zero or negative. So we're building cheap power, but power with very little value in the market, and that's where we're getting it wrong. 
So what does it actually mean when you say it's it's price negative? Does that mean it's got nowhere to go? No one wants to use it. No one needs it. What does it actually mean? That's right. It means we're 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 dramatically oversupplied. And so you know the way the national electricity market works is it, it's a bidding system. You have a market interval. There's a certain amount of demand. Let's call it a hundred units, whatever whatever it's going to be at the given time, and suppliers bid in. And the last supplier to bid in sets the price and everyone gets paid that price for that market increment. Okay, great. If you build so much wind in South Australia and the wind is blowing, all of those wind um, farms, uh, first of all, they're receiving a renewable energy certificate. So part of their operating revenue is already paid for. They've got that certificate no matter what the price is. So they're getting some money. So they all bid in at close to zero. Now, when you first started building wind in South Australia, you could bid in at close to zero and be sure that the rest of that increment in the market would be filled by other bidders and you would end up being paid that final bid price, whatever that might be. But now those increments are being filled by all wind, fundamentally bidding in at zero. So the market is supplied, it's met, and they all get paid zero. So when these power sources are so strongly correlated with each other, what they effectively do is cannibalise their own market. And now we're beginning to see that in rooftop solar PV in South Australia as well, where in midday there's just so much power coming on that if you're trying to sell solar at that time, your prices are terrible because there's just too much of it at the time and and prices are really low. So you've either got to find more customers elsewhere in the grid, which means you've got to build more interconnections so you can sell into more locations, right? which adds cost, can be net beneficial. So I'm not saying don't necessarily do it, but that's some of the, the cost that isn't represented in the raw cost of the wind and the solar. Or you need to build storage infrastructure to pull some of that extra power off and sell it later. That's more cost. And that storage infrastructure, the power coming out of that storage is going to be a lot more expensive. So we're having these incredibly un- this incredibly unstructured um, situation where everyone's chasing this this same ideal, but the market is changing all around them. Now, if you went and built wind, say, in Queensland, where they have very little wind power, you're not going to get that same phenomenon. And that's what I mean about structuring this and saying, you know, maybe in this section of the market, we're kind of full when it comes to wind. If you want to invest in wind, please come over here and do it here. Or maybe, you know, you have to start saying to, to householders, or you have to start incentivizing them, build your solar f- panels facing west, please. So, you know, this whole history of solar in Australia has been about creating volume supply. Let's get as much electricity from solar as we can, which means you face them north. So you get the maximum amount of sun during the day. But it also means you get your peak output in the middle of the day. I think that's a mistake. We shouldn't be going for high volume output from solar PV. We should be going for high value output from solar PV. Now, in somewhere like Adelaide, we are... We get in really difficult times on hot days between about 4 and 7 p.m. in summer when it's stinking hot, the sun's still up, everyone's running their electricity. And if your solar system is north-facing, its production is is going down at that time. At the same time as prices are going up and up and up, your output's going down and down and down. A west-facing solar PV system is supplying the market when it needs the supply. And that's where renewable technologies can be excellent. You've got supply that's close to load. It's supplying at the time when the market approximately needs it. It lowers stress on the network and the systems. So that's where we have this unstructured approach where not enough engineers have been in the room, not enough regulators have been listened to, and we've just got 
um, high volume, low value supply being built in Australia. We're going to need to redress that balance because all of that high volume, low value supply is creating problems. It also creates problems because it doesn't provide the ancillary services that the market requires. It doesn't provide the frequency control that stabilizes our grid. It does eat the market for the other providers that do, though. So eventually, some of those providers leave the market. And that's what we've seen in South Australia with our coal-fired generation. We're going to see it with other coal-fired assets. And what we're, we're, what we're discovering now, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is, those assets weren't just making electricity. They were making stability. The new assets make electricity, but they don't make stability. So we're losing two things when we thought we were only losing one. And again, that's when the cost comes back in, where you have people like other players who are responsible for that saying, okay, well, we now need to go and build some synchronous condensers over here to help stabilize the grid. And you go, who pays for that? Well, the taxpayer pays for that, not the renewable energy developers, right? They're not, they're not internalizing those costs in their development. So this so-called cheap wind and solar is such a partial truth. There's so much more to it than that to create an effective system. And the concerning thing is that we're only getting started. There's still a flood of investment in Australia coming in wind and solar and little to no redress of these problems in a structured way. And the problems that we've seen in Canberra this week just make that worse again. You know, I flatter myself, I flatter my own philosophy that I would hope that maybe nuclear technology is some sort of a circuit breaker there where you can argue and say, look, we're not arguing against the need to lower greenhouse gas emissions. This is a clean energy technology, but it also brings stability. It also brings high capacity credit so that if you're having one of those days in Adelaide that is stinking hot, but it also happens to be cloudy, which does happen. You know, the nuclear will be there if the solar isn't performing at its best that day. We've got to think in terms of how do we address all of these problems or this crisis that you've talked about, it's, it's still coming. It's starting, but it's still coming. What would you say sort of specifically to younger listeners that might be tuned into this? Oh, gee. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 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 um, well, I'd, what would I say? What would you encourage them to do? You know, maybe they're doing, maybe they're students, they're wondering what path to take. Listen, the thing I'd encourage them to, to first of all think is that there is, there is nothing about dealing with climate change that means our future needs to be anything other than brilliant and better than the past. We, we have the tools and we have the technology. Do not be afraid. Um, this is something incredibly exciting if we get behind the right approaches that's, that's just going to make the world better. I guess I would, I would encourage all of those people to be constantly doing the check on am I becoming ideological? Am I becoming overly persuaded in one area? Am I spending enough time stepping back? Uh, am I being impartial enough about what's in front of me if this is if this is an area of interest because we need more more and more of us to to be prepared to do that where we can have conversations where our position i guess you could describe it might be strongly defended but only loosely held you know so if you get new information that, that needs you to evolve your thinking you do and this is happening for me all the time i mean 
you know, I'm continually exposed to the energy transition and what's coming down the line. And I'm, I'm reading the reports from our market operator and our energy regulator. And there is more potential in some of these technologies than I would have thought five years ago. Um, I have to be continuing to evolve those processes. And so I think I would be encouraging young, young people if they were trying to speak up and out to say, we have total confidence that we can deal this challenge. And now we expect you to be getting on with it. And this is the sort of way we want you to have that conversation. And look, and you know, again, the obvious plug that I would make is if this sounds interesting, please come and join Bright New World. I mean, please jump on our Facebook page. Please have these conversations. Please, uh, there are some terrific students at Uni New South Wales that are, that are wanting to start a students association to talk about uh, nuclear power. And again, it's like, it's a bit like terrestrial energy showing up where they're supposedly not invited, but saying, no, no, we should be having this conversation too. Be active. Um, there's no end of change you can create if you want to get interested and involved in this. No, no end at all. We have the tools and we have the knowledge. I think the, the trick now is to build the networks and start ourselves marching in the same general direction. If we can do that, we can actually get the change that we need. Bright New World is what you're working on at the moment. Give us the, the web address. Yeah, absolutely. Or? Look, brightnewworld.org, so www.brightnewworld.org is our website. Um, love it if people would go and visit and have a read. You know, if you read the front page of the website, you'll kind of get a version of our manifesto, you know, what our vision for the world is. And if you go and have a look at, at our about page, you'll, you'll get our constitution where you'll, you'll get our constitutionally stated values, you know, where you really see that nuclear technology is a means to an end. You know, we're, we're about the world we're trying to create. Um, we have a blog there, the, uh, the Bright New blog, where there's writing um, particularly from me and in the future there's going to be more where you can see what it is we're trying to argue and the sort of world we're, we're trying to create there. And we have a Facebook page, uh, which is an active community. I'm going to make a really blatant pitch here. I'd love to see more women joining the page and joining the organisation. I, I, this is such a gendered issue globally. It's, it's massively gendered. When you look at uh, who is broadly speaking comfortable with nuclear power technology and who isn't, you get one thing. When you split it up by gender, it's, it's a wow thing. It can be sort of a 20 percentage point difference between how men feel about this and how women feel about this. So we really have to try to engage really, really hard uh, with, with uh, women in Australia and around the world. And a big part of that is if you are a woman that thinks this is this is something worth doing, please come and join, please, please, because you make it easier for other women to participate as well. Um, I mean, I'm a man, can't help that. That's not going to change. Got nothing, got nothing against myself and other men. We're grouse, but it's not. You know, we we can't do it alone. Um, so we've tried with Bright New World to create um, a very friendly social media space. You know, we we moderate in a way that means it is about discussion. You know, we don't tolerate bullying. We don't tolerate people being overly opinionated, even if we know it's coming from the right place. You know, we keep that place safe for people to have conversations. And I'd really, really welcome um, uh, the participation of more women. That would be, uh, it, it's, it's actually almost, I'd say this to almost, almost to anyone who's wanting to work in, in the space in Australia or worldwide, I'd say one of the first questions you need to ask is, um, what's our strategy? to ensure that women are a part of this conversation. Like that, that demographic difference that's shown in survey after survey all around the world means if you're not asking that question, you're not looking at the data and the evidence. And that's supposed to be what we're all about, right? Well, the data and the evidence here is that we've got a huge job to do in, uh, in, reaching, out to, in reaching out to women. Um, and if you are a woman, you can be a huge part of that by reaching back out to us. 
any good fission reaction produces two to three neutrons. Give me two or three people I should invite to speak to when going fishing. Ooh, wonderful. Um, look, I think uh, Professor Jeff Curry is uh, an absolute legend. You know, he, his job isn't to talk so much about nuclear power production, but what he doesn't know about nuclear medicine isn't worth knowing. And that's an area where Australia actually does incredibly well. He's also a heck of a nice guy. So I'd love the world to get to know Jeff Curry uh, a lot better. Um, Dr. Macy De Los Reyes uh, is the chair of the Australian Nuclear Association here in South Australia. She's a wonderful person. She works in radiation protection here, but she is one of the few Australians that has sort of advanced reactor operational experience. She's quite a remarkable uh, person. I'd love to hear more from Macy. And Oh, God, who else? I get to choose one more, do I? You know what? If you could do it, uh, I wonder if you could get leader of the New South Wales National Party, John Barillaro. So he's the, de the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, and he has had a wonderful pragmatic attitude to the fact that Australia needs to be considering nuclear power and particularly the use of small modular reactors. I went to see him speak in Sydney, and I was really impressed because he didn't overcook it. I was concerned I was going to find an evangelical politician, and I didn't. I found a really a really pragmatic, calm, and measured politician talking on that topic. So there you go. There's my three. Uh, Jeff, Macy, and John Barillaro. See what you can do. Dr. Ben Hurd, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Logan, thanks. And again, congratulations on this initiative. I'm right behind it. Thank you. This concludes my first episode of Going Fishing. Thank you very much for listening. I really enjoyed conducting this interview, and the more I've listened to the content the more I really appreciated the discussion. Bad news is I had to cut about half of it just to get it to around one hour. The good news, however, is that I'm going to make the original Skype interview available on YouTube. Unedited. Warts and all. For a little more of me speaking, you get a lot more of Ben, and it's all really good stuff. Lastly, if you would like some additional reading, the Eco-Modernist Manifesto and the submission to the Royal Commission by Senator Sean Edwards and Dr. Ben Hurd, both mentioned in this interview, are available at www.decarbonisesa.com. Bright New World is found at www.brightnewworld.org. Thank you for listening. At Fish and Going is the podcast's Twitter handle. Australia is a young nation located on the far side of the world. Our history demonstrates we can stand up to injustice, admit when we are wrong, and muster the courage to act in spite of our fears. By no means are we perfect, but we often punch above our weight on the world stage. Today, our greatest challenge is not posed by international tensions, but from how humanity chooses to progress. We have everything we need to lead the world in making the right choice, and we only need to embrace the courage to do it. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.